Well, good morning. All right, sound a little rough. I know it's cold outside, but uh, you, I would say that I, it was an excuse to have an extra cup of coffee, but I use that excuse literally every single day of my life, so I can't say that. But anyway, it is good to see you, and I want to say good morning to those of you who are uh, visiting with us today or maybe watching online for the first time on behalf of our church family. We're just so grateful that you are our guest, and we would love to know you. Um, you can uh, stop by one of the welcome tables on your way out of the building today if you're with us on campus or if you're with us on campus or watching online. You can text the word CONNECT to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. How awesome is it what those ladies are doing at the pavilion? And we, did, we didn't celebrate them. We didn't clap for them. That is awesome. And uh, let's keep it going. Let's keep it going by seeing a few new people partner with them and carry on that incredible ministry. That is really what it is all about. And that is why we put so much effort into the fall festival every year. And we would love for you to help out with that this Wednesday as well. So if you're not already signed up to help out, uh, we'd love for you to sign up. You can help with our uh, team that's serving food or help with the games, or you can literally just sit next to your car and watch kids get candy all night. Like that is how basic the, the level of uh, skill uh, involved is uh, that uh, we need for Wednesday night. So there is a place for every single person. Hopefully you smile at least, please do that. But uh, we would love for you to be a part of that. You see, the goal of our church is to do whatever it takes to lead people to believe in Jesus belong to God's family, and become who he has created them to be. That is why we want every one of us to worship, to be growing, to be serving, to give, and to be reaching people with the gospel because we want to see more people see who Jesus is and see who uh, God wants them to be. And something we say and we pray every week is that our goal is not just to grow our church, it is to build the kingdom. And so we are partnered together with like-minded churches in our region through the Emerald Coast Church Network, uh, something that I am a big part of. Uh, it's just local churches working together to help plant churches and to strengthen churches and to grow together um, and, and help in times of need. And then we're connected to uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and the Florida Baptist Convention. Uh, those are just churches, again, similar doctrine that cooperate for missions to send millions and millions of dollars overseas and towards church planning and disaster relief and all those things. And, and I just ask that you pray uh, for uh, those efforts. There's uh, a lot going on in the life of really our country right now. And so uh, our group, our family of churches isn't exempt from that. And, you know, I will say that as a Southern Baptist and Florida Baptist Church, uh, we send uh, representatives or we can send representatives, we call them messengers, to those conventions. If you're ever interested in going to one of those uh, and you're an active member of our church, you're more than welcome to that. In fact, the Florida Baptist Convention is coming up in just a few weeks. And so if you're interested, just email the, in going to Lakeland, Florida. I don't know anybody's interested in going to Lakeland, Florida other than uh, for something. But um, you can email our church office and our deacons affirm uh, those who might go. But I do ask that you pray uh, just for what's going on. And if you ever have questions about what you read on the news,
news or what's going on, you certainly can reach out to me. I feel it as a responsibility as our pastor to kind of keep in touch with what is going on because I very much value this tradition we have, 160 plus years of cooperating together uh, to see some incredible um, efforts for the gospel to go forth. And, you know, these traditions that we are part of really can be uh, something that is very valuable. A tradition is something that is essentially handed down. A tradition is or are things or ways of doing things that people have benefited from that are then passed off to the next generation in hopes that they will benefit from them in the same way. We have traditions when it comes to our recreation. We have traditions when it comes to society that's even different levels of society. We certainly have family traditions, and of course, we have faith traditions. And again, tradition is a good thing. When we are connected to those who have seen the faithfulness of God for years, who are trying to show us his faithfulness, or show us the ways that he helps us grow and the ways that he gives us strength, that is certainly a good thing. We as a church are 111 years old. And in the first service, we are full of people who aren't 111 years old, but uh, who, uh, uh, some are close to that, uh, who have been faithful in this community for years and years. And, and God uses them and uses the things they've experienced to teach me and can teach you in such a great way. So our traditions can very well be a good thing. But what we're going to see today is how tradition can be a good thing and not a God thing. And that can ultimately lead to our tradition becoming a bad thing. If you would turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 1 in Mark chapter 7 today. And our, passages, our passage reintroduces us to everyone's favorite group to pick on from the Bible, the Pharisees, who will now play a reoccurring and significant role in the rest of our time in the Gospel of Mark, so for like the next year and a half. And so while we talk about their problems today, I want to help us avoid staying conceptual. I want to help us avoid staying ideological. And I also want to talk about what this really means for us at 1045 this morning. That's when we, when we leave. So let's dive in. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless their hand, they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Let's pause here. The last time that we saw the Pharisees, they went out with the Herodians to conspire how they might destroy Jesus because of his healing of the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. The scribes then came down from Jerusalem and said that Jesus was possessed by a demon. Mark mentions that these scribes come down from Jerusalem. They are from Jerusalem. These are the big dogs who were close with the Sanhedrin, uh, 
the Jewish high court or who were even perhaps members of the Jewish high court. They were in cahoots with Herod and his people. Their roles were religious, but they were also political. Now, the Greek language that Mark uses here connects with the popularity of Jesus in chapter 6 to show a contrast between how the crowd felt about Jesus and how the crew that we're reading about right now felt about Jesus. This group is here to investigate Jesus. The primary issue between Jesus and the Pharisees is that Jesus did not recognize the authority of the Pharisees' oral law, also called the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders was the technical phrase for the interpretation of scriptures made by past esteemed rabbis that was then passed on. Some have suggested that the oral law traces back to the time of Moses. We know that the oral law, our first record of the oral law being written down was around 200 AD in the Mishnah. That's about 100 or so years after the New Testament was first written. Now, the oral law was purposeful. It had three main purposes. The first point of the tradition of the elders was to make the law applicable to everyday life. You see, the Bible talks about holiness. And so there's this idea of God's people being holy. And so the purpose of the oral law was then to make that holiness attainable, to show you how you could live that out. It was really the practical application. It was the tell me how to do these things that God says. Another purpose of the tradition of the elders was that it sought to preserve the culture of the Jewish people. The oral law created iron walls. And so they really stopped you from getting to the point of breaking the commandment of God, or that was the idea, because if you didn't break the oral law, you would never really break the written law of God. And so there were extra rules on circumcision and on the Sabbath and on the food laws to help you avoid breaking the what the Bible says, the Old Testament says. And another reason that it, way it preserved the culture is it really was this identification. By keeping the oral law, you were clearly identified as a Jew. The third point of the oral law is order. It really allows for some structure amongst the religious people and a way of doing things that would be commonly practiced. So here what we find is that they found a problem with the fact that the disciples were not adhering to the oral law in regards to purification. There were some laws on the Bible on purification. Priests were required to wash their hands and feet before offering ritual service, Exodus chapter 30, verse 18 through 21. Priests had to be, had to be pure before eating sacrificial offerings that were left over, Leviticus chapter 22, verse 3 through 9. Any lay person who would eat of the fellowship offering had to be pure. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 20 and 21. But nowhere does the Bible say that others have to wash their hands before their meals for ritual purity. The Pharisees and rabbis actually adapted this and treated every meal as if it was offered at the altar. Mark tells us that if they went to the marketplace, they were concerned that they may have had some interaction with a non-observant person, 
And so they then would wash their hands before eating at that time too. And many more things like washing their vessels according to the prophecy about the temple in Zechariah chapter 14. Now to be clear, this is not an issue of clean, cleanness in the sense of hygiene and well-being. This is about ceremony. It's about ritual purity. And so they question Jesus on this. In their day, a teacher was responsible for the conduct of his disciples. And so they ask Jesus, why do your disciples not do this? Jesus had clearly not taught his disciples to do this. He's clearly taught his disciples they don't have to do this. In fact, Jesus didn't do this. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 11, verse 37 and 38, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, Mark has set up this tension in this text by telling it in a narrative style. But if you were an original reader, you were an original hearer who is hearing this read out loud in the New Testament, in the early church, you knew that Christians were not observing the oral law and many of the traditions passed on by the Pharisees. And based on your upbringing or based on your exposure, you might have had different feelings about why Christians weren't or the fact that Christians weren't practicing this. And so if you were an original reader, you would ask, okay, so what do we learn from this? What do we do as a result of this tension? And the answer to that comes from Jesus' words to the Pharisees. Mark chapter 7, verse 6. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, while there is a lot covered here in what Jesus said, what typically stands out when someone tells you the problems they have with you uh, and what you are doing is what they call you. If somebody's talking to you and say, hey, you did this and that and you're a jerk, what you remember most is that they called you a jerk. If somebody says, hey, you dummy, why did you do that? And talks about what you did, what you remember most is that they called you a dummy. If somebody says, quit being so difficult, you cotton-headed ninny muggins, what you remember most is that they called you a cotton-headed ninny muggins. Sorry, the fall air is getting me ready for Christmas. So what Jesus calls them here are hypocrites. That's a word that has become the basis for the rejection of religion by many people today. A word by which many people are actually confused about what it really means. 
Often when you ask somebody what a hypocrite is, they give you some answer that's basically like, hey, these people say they believe this, but they actually, you know, aren't doing that. They're not perfect. They're not keeping it up. A hypocrite is actually not someone who says, hey, I'm living for this, but messes up. Some people think a hypocrite is someone who is imbalanced, like they're kind of immature and they haven't gotten, you know, everything worked out the way it should be fully about their faith. But that's actually also not what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is, the word is literally translated from the Greek into the word actor or someone who wears a mask. Actors in their days would wear a mask to play the parts that they would play. This is not someone who struggles. It's not someone who is maturing. It is someone who plays a part because they seek to deceive people or because they have been deceived and bought into something, and so they're therefore playing a part. Now, what is really the problem here? What does this really look like here? And I want to show you two things that this shows us about hypocrites. These are the fruits of hypocrisy, according to what Jesus is saying. The first would be this. Empty worship. Empty worship. Jesus responds to the question of the Pharisees by referencing Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. In Isaiah chapter 29, the prophet said, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment, taught by men. The issue with Israel in Isaiah chapter 29 is that they are continuing with their worship. They are continuing with their tradition, but their hearts are not close to God. He is saying, you are going through all the motions, but there is a disconnect between your hands and your feet and your heart. We all know this sort of experience in our ordinary life. We might attend one man's retirement ceremony and he's respected by his coworkers. He's admired by almost everyone. When the party is given to honor him, everyone knows that the handshakes and the speeches and the congratulations and the gifts are sincere. They come from the heart. But then a few years later, old Krabby Pants retires. And out of duty, the party is given with the same handshakes and the same speeches and the same gifts, but everyone knows this time the honor was paid with the lips, but the heart was far away. Or have you ever sat through a school talent show? And some clapping is genuine appreciation for the talent that is on display in this young person on the stage. But some of the clapping is because, well, you can't boo a seven-year-old who's singing, I'm proud to be an American, even if it sounds like a dog got ran over when they sing. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, when you are coming to worship, when you are coming to offer your sacrifice, you're just playing the part. You're just going through the motions. Now, the argument to this would be, but they fear God. These people fear God. They acknowledge God all the time. But Isaiah says, 
Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They think if we don't pray before the game, then we might not win or somebody might get hurt. They think if we don't pledge allegiance to God's political party, then maybe we won't prosper. And they think if we don't portray piety, then we won't be respected in our society. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus says this comes out in their lives that their worship isn't genuine, it's empty. I've met people, you have probably met people that this is where they are. They're regularly a part of church services and church programs, but there's a disconnect with their heart. If you don't know those people, then perhaps it's you. One of the fruits of hypocrisy, one of the things we see about hypocrisy is empty worship. The other one that this text tells us about is the replacement and the rejection of the word of God. Another fruit of hypocrisy is the replacement and the rejection of the word of God. If you are continuing to stay connected to the faith and your heart is not for God, then eventually you are going to have to replace the word of God. See, you can't just keep reading the Bible and stay the way you are. Either you have to change or you replace the Bible. In verse 7, Jesus said, In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is saying now the core beliefs you have, the driving force in the church and in your faith, isn't what God commanded, it's what man has commanded. You are no longer looking to God, but looking to what the group holds dear and the group affirms. And if the heart is not checked, discipleship, spiritual growth, maturity is actually about heading further away from the heart of God and the word of God and more into the tradition of man. Verse 8 and 9, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. People begin to make rules. They begin to change the standards. They begin to change the goals and smother the commands of God and the will of God. They become ritualistic and traditionalistic, but miss foundational aspects of what it means to be a Christ follower. Or perhaps they become a part of an inspirational church where they feel good about their involvement, but they neglect the holiness of God. Or love is God, but God is not love. And our faith becomes very self-serving. It becomes about us and our journey and who we are. And Jesus gives an extreme example 
of someone who vows their property belongs to the temple. And so since they have vowed that their property belongs to the temple, they don't have to spend anything to help their parents while they are still alive. So what they were doing is they were using their money on whatever they wanted to use, and then when their parents had needs, they said, sorry, that money that I don't spend is vowed to God. They're using God to serve their purpose. And this happens when we begin to walk away from the scripture. We begin to first teach the doctrines of man, excuse me, the commandments of man as doctrine. And then we begin to leave the commandment of God to hold to that tradition or that way of church or that way of life. And then we just reject the commandment of God in order to build on that. This is a result of hypocrisy. This is a fruit of hypocrisy, the replacement and rejection of the word of God. Now, how do we get here? How do we get to where people are worshiping in vain and staying connected to the church but neglecting the word of God? Well, I want to talk about some roots now of hypocrisy. And perhaps the root of hypocrisy is this, pride. Pride. You see, the issue with the Pharisees is they're not looking for God's validation. They're looking for man's validation. They're not looking for their status with God, but their status with men. Now, why is that appealing? Well, because you can avoid the issues you really don't want to deal with by finding a group of people who say, just do these things with us. And what we do is we create this version of righteousness that we have come up with, not that God has come with. You see, their commitment was to an endless list of rules and regulations that make them feel like they're good with God. And I think a lot of us are doing this. I want to illustrate this with the idea of a, a ledger. See, reconciliation with God is really about uh, a ledger being balanced. And we have an image to show you here. Um, and so I think a lot of us are doing this with God. This is how our life works. So we're born, right? And we're a beautiful little baby, or at least our parents think we're a beautiful little baby. And so just being born is worth something. And so our balance of righteousness is a, a thousand, whatever, whatever is, I don't know. But then we go to preschool age and we go through the terrible threes. If you have two-year-olds, I'm so sorry, it gets worse. We go through the terrible threes and so that actually causes a deficit in our righteousness. But then when we're eight, and I mean this kindly, I'm not saying every eight-year-old isn't genuine, but if you ever interview people, the number of people who get baptized at eight is staggering because it has to do with mental ability to articulate faith and not necessarily heart ability to understand who Jesus is. And so we get baptized when we're eight because we can articulate it. And, and so that's worth a lot, right? So now we're baptized, and so we're way in the positive when it comes to righteousness, and then in elementary school, we're part of an awesome children's ministry program, and we memorize all these Bible verses, and so we're doing real well. But then in middle school, we forget all those Bible verses, 
And so it's coming back down. And then we go into high school and maybe we do some things like underage drinking and definitely we do some things like disrespecting our parents and that balance is getting low. But then we go to youth camp and we recommit our life to Jesus. And now we're back up in the positive, doing pretty good. And then we enter into young adulthood, the college years, a young parent. We're busy and church involvement just kind of slacks. And so it goes back down more. And then, you know, we don't have a ton of money. So we don't give to God mainly because we want to be in charge of our money and do the things we want to do. And then we yell at our kids, you know, because they're aggravating. Not all you, but, you know, theoretically. And so the balance just keeps going down. But you know what? We go to church on Easter. So tick back up a little bit. And then we do all the things with our kids to make up for the fact that we yell at them. Whatever sport they want to do, whatever activity we want to do. And that's what good American Christians do, right? Is whatever their kids want to do. And so the balance goes back up. And then, you know, we don't cuss in traffic. So we're, we're hanging in there. About a positive, just over zero. But we think in our mind hey, we're good with God because this is how we live. And we think. And I'm telling you, even people who got baptized at eight professing that Jesus is the only way kind of have this mentality, well, we're doing our best. And so that makes us righteous. And I apologize if I sound too firm about this, but to think that your best is worth the presence of a holy God is blasphemy. Your righteousness is filthy rags. Your best day is not worth even being on the edge of the presence of God. The gospel is not that you can do your best, but that Jesus gave his all for you. That's what makes us righteous. But yet pride will be a source of hypocrisy. Another thing that leads to hypocrisy is control. And again, I would, I'd probably say this kind of builds from pride, but basically, you know, hey, we're struggling with our own insecurity and our own issues. And so we think, you know what? If we can kind of get people to do what we do, misery loves company, right? If we can get people to be like we are, then, then we're good. And so what happens, and this is what was happening, their fear of God was a commandment taught by men. You see, it's easier to enforce man-made rules than to seek the heart of God. It's easier to come up with man-made rules about alcohol. It's easier to come up with man-made rules about how you should dress for church. It's easier to come up with man-made rules about worship and what it should be. And, and I just want to warn you that we begin to take, find false comfort in the fact that, well, we don't drink, or we only drink this much, or these kind of things, or we dress like this on Sundays, or we go to a church that does this, and we find this false comfort, and what it leads to is this arrogance. And I'm telling you, be careful here, because you know what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says about love? It says love does not insist on its own way. And so if you think, hey, we have to do things my way, that is not loving. Your preferences are fine, but you know what they are? They're your preferences. They're not the law. I value everybody's preferences in this room, but one of our values as a church is, is that we takes priority over me. It's not always about what James Ross wants. Trust me. I can come up with a blog for you if you want me to. It's not always about what I want. It's about what God wants. But if we aren't careful, we begin to control because we find security in this, and that really leads to hypocrisy. The third thing I would say that leads to hypocrisy is this continual inconsistency that we have. 
Again, I think that comes from pride, but basically, you know, we're really not seeking the Lord. We're just finding the things that we kind of attach ourselves to that make us feel good about ourselves. And it ultimately leads to hypocrisy. When it comes to, there are those who, who treasure the, 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 the unborn or say they do and, and value, you know, the sanctity of life, but then they don't care about the poor. And there are those who say we got to take care of the poor and they don't care about the hundreds of thousands of lives that are taken every year because of abortion. And there's this inconsistency. There are those who are prejudiced because they don't really seek to understand other cultures and other people and what they've been through. They just need their people and their good. And there are people who do lots of good deeds, but they're full of anger. And then there are those that really have different things they emphasize. And so there's a certain theological issue they become very passionate about. And they take pride in that, but then they really don't know much about other basic level theological things. Or they get really passionate about a cause. And if you don't jump on board with that cause with the same passion, well, you're less than them. Or they serve in a way and they attach their identity to that thing. And these are all things that really result in hypocrisy. And I would say to you and then about other people, we need to take a look at the whole picture. That's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. Hey, you got a couple things down, but let's look at the whole man. Let's look at the whole woman. Another thing that leads to hypocrisy is unconscious immaturity. This means you don't know that you are spiritually immature. Now, Let me say this, it's okay that the Pharisees and scribes said, hey, we want to treat every meal like it's a meal prepared for God, and so because of that, we want to do this ritual. That's okay. But then they begin to say and begin to teach, if you don't do that, you're not where you should be with God, which is immature. The Apostle Paul, a lot of his writing is on the fact that like people were kind of saying, hey, you, you can't eat this meat or you can't do these things. And he's saying, that's fine, but it's actually immaturity to think that matters in your spiritual progress. So I don't know if you've ever seen the competence diagram, but I, I have that to show you. It is just, if you need to learn something, you guys can, thank you. Uh, if you need to learn something, then this is kind of what happens, right? Like at first, you have unconscious incompetence, which means you don't know what you do not know. And um, then you get into your 20s and 30s, and uh, you gain conscious incompetence, which means, oh, wow, I really didn't know a lot. That, that's basically been the last 20 years of my life. And then you, you, you develop Conscious competence, which means, okay, now I need to grow in those things and learn how to do those things, and I'm figuring out. And then you get to the point of unconscious competence, which means you know how to do it, and you practice it so much that it's like secondhand nature to you. You just kind of do these things without thinking. And, and, and spiritual maturity is very much the same way. So we have just same, replace those words, and, and you have the same thing. You start with unconscious immaturity, like you don't know how spiritually immature you are. And then you move to conscious immaturity where you realize, oh, those things that I think are very immature, and and this is just what I'm saying. A lot of people go to church all their life and never realize that they're spiritually immature. They never realize that some of the things that we value, that's fine, but it actually doesn't bring you closer to God. There's only one mediator 
between man and God, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. A worship style does not bring you closer to God. It's immature to think that. You can worship in a different language that you don't understand. That's how you get close to God is because the blood of Jesus has interceded for you with the Father. There is nothing you do that actually brings you closer to God or don't do that actually brings you further away from God. That is the cross of Jesus Christ's job. That's it. And so I would say that some people stay there thinking these things make me right with God. Now, now I gotta say something, especially in our contemporary services. There is a tension here because I think a lot of people just kick church history to the curb. And there are many people who can identify the problems with tradition and who can talk about religious hypocrites, but you still reject the word of God. There are many people who have moved to whatever is progressive in our culture, and they would say it's out of reaction to, you know, things that have happened in our past, but they're still not looking to the word of God. There are many people who've said, I don't want to be a part of church. I don't want to have to do anything to do with it. You're still not honoring the word of God. What I'm suggesting to you is not a counter narrative between church history and church tradition and traditional and contemporary. What I'm suggesting to you is the meta narrative that we are saved by grace through faith, not that of ourselves. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we can stand in the presence of God and every day is to be lived in response to to the amazing grace that he has shown us. That's what I'm presenting to you. And so I would say the answer to that is biblical literacy. It's to know what the word of God says, not what the arguments are about both sides of whatever debate it may be. The last thing that I'll say that leads us to hypocrisy is this, and this might be the ultimate issue is insecurity. I think the reason that we see a lot of hypocrisy in the faith is because there are people who don't know that they're right with God. And they cling to whatever it may be that makes them feel validated instead of clinging to Jesus. I think there are people in this room, people watching online this morning, and you're thinking, I, I hope I'm good enough. You're not. You're not. That's not the gospel. If you get to heaven and say, I tried to do my best for you, Lord, A, you didn't actually, and B, it's not good enough. You're not holy. I'm not holy. I just want to close by reading Isaiah chapter one or part of Isaiah chapter one, which is really the book that inspired a lot of what Jesus will say, but specifically what he's saying here. And I think Jesus was thinking about this as he interacted with the Pharisees. Isaiah chapter one, verse 13 through 20. The prophet says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. I think that there are those who have not really dealt with God and they think, as long as I just keep going to church or keep going to church every once in a while and keep doing fill in the blank, God's good, God's happy. He's not. He'd rather you stop. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God says, I want repentance. Not a purification ritual, but real washing of the sins in your soul that leads to a transformation in the way that you view people because you now have the Father's heart. Listen to what he says. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If this is you, God says, come, let us reason together. You have a balance, a debt that is more than you could ever work off. But it is finished on the cross. Come. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah, God says, come. In Jesus, he says, come. Let's pray together. God, help us to see our sin, our debt, that nothing can repay and help us to realize that you have paid it. Maybe for the first time, someone just cries out to you, here I am, here I am. Give me rest. I'm weary of trying to be good enough. For us as Christians, Lord, help us to realize that we are not brought closer to God by our traditions or our preferences, but we are fully brought to the presence of God to the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that amazing grace. May we respond to that now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.